Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, the, the difficult decision of having to decide if you want to take an Alfred plea, if you want to take any kind of plea. I, I mean, if I was put in that situation, would I stay? in prison to fight for my innocence, knowing I might never get out or take a deal, get out. And then you can't fight for your innocence after that. It's a literal Sophie's choice, Maggie, right? I mean, you have this intense pressure. You know that they have the ability to say, hey, we're going to leave you sitting in, in jail or prison for a year, two years or more while you await your retrial. Uh, many Many strong-willed and, and brave and brilliant people have taken the plea because it's there's really no way out. And they just want to go just home. They just want to get out. Yeah, they have to go home. Yeah. I didn't comprehend that I was going to prison for the rest of my life. I'm thinking to myself, are you saying that I can never be with my parents again? I can never go back to my bed, you know, my home? So I'm losing all my friends. I mean, all this is going to be taken. Are you kidding me? From Lava for Good, this is Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Today, Laquanda Faye Jacobs. On the evening of February 9th, 1992, Kevin Gaddy and Tony Davis were walking down the street when a car pulled up. A man and a woman got out and held them at gunpoint. They demanded the jacket Kevin Gaddy was wearing. It was a Chicago Bulls starter jacket. In the 1990s, these satin jackets were a status symbol. As Kevin was handing his jacket over, a struggle ensued, and he was shot in the chest. Around the same time, Laquanda Faye Jacobs and her mother were on their way to church when they saw police commotion near Faye's house. They stopped to see what was going on. As Faye got out of the car, an officer approached her and asked her who she was. Faye was instantly arrested and taken down to the police station for questioning, but she had an alibi. 
and the woman they should have been looking for was at least 15 years older than Faye. But it didn't matter. Faye was eventually charged and convicted of the murder of Kevin Gaddy. They knew all along that I was innocent, but just wanting to use me as an example to other young juveniles. Therefore, I was railroaded into the system. I am Laquanda Faye Jacobs. 1992, I was arrested for capital felony murder of a friend of mine. Laquanda Faye Jacobs was born in Little Rock, Arkansas on February 22, 1975. She was the baby of a big family, six boys and six girls. I was always picked on by my older siblings, uh, but um, I, I considered myself stronger than my other siblings, even though I was the baby. I come from a great family. Uh, I was raised in the church. My dad was uh, started off as a deacon in the church and ended up becoming an assistant pastor. And I was deeply involved uh, at the age of uh, four years old. Uh, Faye sang in the church choir and was an outgoing child and teenager. I'm just a people person. That's just the type of personality I've always had. I was a friend with everybody from church people. I even had friends that were gang members. You know, um, just a typical teenager. I had fights. Uh, I had boyfriends. <laughs> uh, I did a lot. You know, that's who Faye was. And like many kids, she had lots of different visions for her future. I wanted to be a nurse at one time. I wanted to be a beautician because I loved doing my doll's hair, you know. So, of course, uh, I was like, I'm going to be a beautician. Uh, my grandfather was a Barbara, and my grandmother was a beautician. I even dreamed of being in the Army one day. But then later on, as I got older, in my teenage, I was like, nah, I don't want to go do that, you know. In high school, she played on the junior varsity volleyball team, and she says she was incredibly popular, and other students looked up to her. I dreamed of graduating, going to the prom, uh, going to a dance, and, you know, I could have possibly been the queen because I was so popular. But, you know, that, those are things that were robbed from me, that opportunity. morning of February 9th, 1992, 16-year-old Faye got up and went to church to attend service. It was Sunday, and she had planned to sing at two services that day. Afterward, her mother picked her up from the house Faye rented with her brother. They got back to Faye's mom's apartment at 2 p.m. Faye's friend picked her up shortly after that, and they ran some errands, including to the laundromat and back to her friend's house. He dropped Faye back at her mom's place at around 5.30. Her Sunday was pretty packed. I had another service to attend that night. My mom and I were going to a singing at another church. Faye's mom arrived home shortly after and found Faye relaxing on the couch. Faye was still in her white church clothes. But at the same time, over a mile away, a situation was unfolding that would change Faye's life forever. 17-year-old Kevin Gaddy and his friend Tony Davis, who was 14, 
were walking down the street when a gray car pulled up. A man and a woman got out. The woman had a gun, and they demanded the jacket Kevin Gaddy was wearing, a Chicago Bulls starter jacket. As Kevin was handing it over, he put his hand in his coat pocket to get his brush. That's when things got messy, and the woman shot Kevin in the chest. On their way to their second church event of the day, Faye and her mom passed the crime scene right outside Faye's house, so they stopped to see what was going on. As Faye got out of the car, a police officer grabbed her. And I was instantly threw on the car, put in handcuffs. At this time, I didn't know that a shooting had occurred. I was already handcuffed once I said who I was and that I lived there too as well at the house that they were at. I was put in the back seat of the car and taken to the Little Rock Police Department, not knowing what is going on. At the precinct, the police asked Faye if they could do a gunshot residue test on her. And so after my gun residue was negative, they was like, well, we're going to let her go home, you know. And they was like, if you hear anything about a shooting, let us know. And I was like, who shot? What is going on? It wasn't until days later that Faye learned it was her friend, Kevin, who was shot and killed outside of her house. Kevin and I were both the same age, but he was a few months older than me. And uh, he was real known for his scooter and his skills with basketball. I always, even as a kid, I used to say, you're going to go big, Kevin, you know, because he was so good at basketball, you know. Uh, But like I said, from kindergarten to uh, seventh grade, him and I went to school together. Kevin was pronounced dead less than an hour after he was shot. And it was so unbelievable because I knew he was such a good kid. He was a good friend. And it was just very devastating to learn that he had been shot. During their investigation into Kevin's murder, police found at least eight eyewitnesses who saw the shooting. Their descriptions of the woman who fired the gun varied, but most agreed she was in her 30s with scars under her eyes and that she was wearing dark clothing, including a black hat. Tony Davis was the eyewitness closest to the shooting and on that very day described the woman as, quote, black, mid-30s, approximately five foot eight, heavy build, medium complexion, wearing a dark ski cap and bluish gray jacket and pants with frizzy hair. Yet Faye, a young teenager wearing entirely different clothing, had already been to the police station and been questioned. So investigators had her photo and showed it to witnesses. Five of them said Faye was not the shooter. Tony Davis was shown a picture of Faye and two times, once on the day of the crime, and again four days later, he was unable to make an identification. But then nine days after the shooting, the police brought him back in. And again, they showed him a photo lineup. And this time, he identified Faye as the shooter. Faye had absolutely no idea what was going on. I was going to school, and uh, this day I wasn't feeling well, and I was at my sister's house. And my mom called my sister and said, "Um, the police has come to my job looking for Faye. for murder and I was like murder I haven't killed anybody and so um, my mom came to my sister house we called my dad we called my pastor and we went to the police station just to clear my name you know to tell them I haven't did anything you know 
I mean, when I tell you, I had no clue that I was even a suspect. Um, and, you know, and that could be what you, I was so young, but I, I didn't commit the crime. So why would I even think that I'm a suspect? I had no knowledge of it. And so we went to the jail to clear my name. And at that time, uh, they arrested me. They did not allow me to clear my name. They arrested me and charged me with capital felony murder and set my bun at $1 million. Okay, I'm 16 and I'm like, I had never been to jail before in my life. And so I'm scared. I'm very scared. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and to making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. Before trial, Faye was appointed public defender James Cluett to represent her. At the time of his appointment, Cluett was representing a client by the name of Sean Riggins. As it happens, Riggins and his brother had been among the witnesses on the street when Kevin was murdered. Two weeks later, Riggins was arrested for an unrelated crime. At that time, he ended up telling police that he'd seen the shooter and that she was actually younger than 30, closer to 15 or 16. He was the only person to say that. And when investigators showed him a photo spread of suspects, he identified Faye as the shooter. Now, this part gets a little confusing, so follow carefully. Not only is Faye's attorney, James Cluett, representing two clients involved in the same case, a clear conflict of interest, but he also asked Faye to lie for Sean Riggins. Faye was in jail with a woman named Bertie Walker, one of Riggins' co-defendants in another case. Cluett approached Faye with an offer. He asked her to say that Bertie had told her she committed the crime alone. In exchange, he said Riggins would not testify against Faye about Kevin's murder. But Faye rejected the offer. She refused to lie and asked for a new lawyer. She was appointed attorney Bill MacArthur. James Cluett was eventually disbarred for separate issues. Faye's trial started a year later, in April 1993. A man named Clifton Thomas was originally charged with Faye as her alleged accomplice, but the charges against him were eventually dropped. So I'm going to court, and I'm like, are you serious? I can't believe this. Why are they doing this to me? And the judge keeps my bond at a million, and he states, uh, we're charging her as an adult. I couldn't believe that this was happening. Prosecutors Howard Koopman and John Miller presented no forensic evidence linking Faye to the crime. They relied heavily on the eyewitness statements of Tony Davis, who was with Kevin that evening, and Sean Riggins. When Faye goes to court, news media is everywhere. She says the case was high profile because of a slew of killings of young people in Arkansas at the time. Arkansas was on the rise of gang violence back in the late 80s, early 90s. 
And so, of course, law enforcement was forced to do something about those crimes. So they had a thing called banging in Arkansas. They was like the Arkansas was like a small uh, Los Angeles with the Crips and the Bloods. And they had videos and they still have these videos. You can pull them up on YouTube called banging in Arkansas. So I did. This is the county coroner for Little Rock, Arkansas, on one of the films. Several years ago when I saw the death rate was increasing, but the victims were becoming much younger and younger and began to see tattoos and brands on on the victims and began to notice that the violence just was increasing and uh, drive-by shootings and random shootings and retaliation killings, and it just went on and on until 1992. We had uh, a record rate of homicides in Little Rock, and it looks we've broken the record in 1993, and it's just gone on and on and on. In fact, a half hour earlier and a few blocks away from Kevin Gaddy's murder, there was another potentially related crime. Around 5 p.m., Little Rock Police Department responded to an aggravated assault, where eyewitnesses told police there was a female perpetrator, a male accomplice, and guess what? A gray car. It's unclear what happened with that case. And something else related to this crime to help you understand, starting in the late 80s, Sports starter jackets were a hot commodity. An article in the New York Times from February of 1990 discusses the phenomenon, calling it, quote, an increasingly pervasive kind of urban crime, robberies by young people willing to kill for clothes, end quote. They cite that at the time, these jackets went for $90 to $200, which today would be about $200 to $400. So Kevin Gaddy becoming a target for his jacket that night was not necessarily unusual at the time. However, Faye's attorney failed at making a case that Faye was caught in the wrong place at the wrong time and that she did not commit the crime. Faye was able to testify on her own behalf, however, and she tried to make the case for herself that she did not kill her friend. In my little mind, I'm thinking that, you know, as soon as I go to court, I can just tell the judge that I didn't do this and he'll see and I'll go home. But the reality, that's not how it works, you know. But I didn't know that. I really believed that I was going to get out of there. On April 21st, 1993, Faye was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to life without parole. She was just 16 years old. I didn't, I didn't comprehend that I was going to prison for the rest of my life. You know, it was until I got back to the jail that the jailer told me, you know, you're not going to ever get out, you know, you're going to jail, you know. And so I was broken inside, you know, had been ripped apart, you know. Are you telling me, I'm thinking to myself, are you saying that I can never be with my parents again? I can never go back to my bed, you know, my home. So I'm losing all my friends. I mean, all this is going to be taken. Are you kidding me? Faye's world had turned completely upside down. I I had many days of crying. So when I was first put in, I was put in a cell all by myself because I was 16. But days later, I was sent to an adult place because I was charged as an adult. And so, of course, I had adults taunt me and bother me. I had even got jumped on in the county jail. You know, because of uh, this high profile and 
that's the juvenile that killed the guy for his jacket. You know, that's how it was labeled. Uh, and so I would go to my room, I would cry. I wouldn't let people see me cry because you, if they saw that, that would show a sign of weakness and they would really take advantage of you and do things. But yeah, I was very scared. Eventually, Faye settled into the prison environment, and just like in high school, her outgoing personality and love of people got her through. By the time she had been there for several years, she had started making a name for herself as a generous person to those coming into the system. And so a lot of ladies come in there, and they don't have the headphones and things like that, so I always had extra so I can share with the other ladies, you know. In 2009, Tiffany Woods came to prison. I was incarcerated for DWIs. So they had moved me in the barracks with Faye. And in order to watch TV, you have to have a radio. Well, I didn't have any family outside, you know, to actually send me any money to buy me a radio. So I seen Faye just all bubbly playing games and stuff. And I was like, excuse me, ma'am, can I borrow your radio? And so she was like, yeah, it's over there on my bed. So that that started our, our, our friendship. Faye and Tiffany hit it off. And when Tiffany got out, she promised Faye she would write her. You know, being in prison, you, you meet people and people tell you, uh, I'm going to write you, I'm going to support you, you know, all the way. And so you hear that all the time. And I have been let down so many times. Well, but Tiffany, Tiffany, um, left and she wrote me and I was like oh my god this girl really wrote me and then she sent me a phone number and said I could call her and I could not believe it because that was something that had never happened throughout my whole incarceration to be able to have contact with another resident that had once been there it's just my loyalty if I tell you I'm going to do something I'm going to do it Tiffany and Faye maintained their friendship over the years. All the while, Faye fought for her innocence. She filed appeal after appeal after appeal for reasons including ineffective assistance of counsel. Faye says her second attorney, Bill MacArthur, failed to meet with her before trial and failed to file any discovery motions or conduct an investigation. He failed to show why Faye could not have committed this crime, starting with the description of the shooter. The shooter, according to Tony Davis's testimony at the trial, was a black woman with scars under her eyes and light brownish-red curly hair peeking out of a black hat, and she was wearing a big winter coat and pants. This description does not fit Faye at all. She had no scars under her eyes, was wearing white church clothes, and her hair was in a top knot. For folks who are very familiar with black hair, African-American hair, she couldn't have gotten her hair up into this very smooth, beautiful top knot if it had been a red curly dew under a cap just hours earlier, right? This is Trisha Bushnell. She's the executive director of the Midwest Innocence Project, known as the MIP. But none of those things ever come out. None of those things are ever investigated or you know, brought to the jury's attention. You know, when you look at Faye's case and you look at the evidence, you can really just think there's really no good evidence here, right? You can look at it and say there's no good evidence. So how does she get convicted? Well, part of it is 
it's just racism, pure and simple, right? We have a, a system that has a young black girl up there and the state is saying she did it. And what does that read like to jurors? The bias appears to have started with the cops who arrested Faye on the spot. And Faye feels strongly that there was racial profiling involved. Trisha is currently Faye's attorney. The MIP took Faye's case in 2014 when they reviewed it and realized it stunk of a wrongful conviction. So there's actually were a lot of witnesses to this crime. And when we went and talked to people, five other people who actually also knew Faye said it was not her, including Sean Riggins' brother, who was standing with him at the car and said, we couldn't see anything from where we were at the car. Sean Riggins, remember, had told police that Faye was the shooter, but he ultimately did recant his identification. And that was the basis of new evidence that we used when we filed a federal habeas petition uh, asking them to overturn Faye's conviction, filed that in 2018. The MIP also brought up in the appeal the four additional eyewitnesses who said the shooter was not Faye and who were never called to testify at trial. However, before a judge could respond to the petition, there was a new development. In 2012, the United States Supreme Court ruled in Miller v. Alabama that juveniles cannot be sentenced to mandatory life without parole, like Faye was. Those who have received this sentence are entitled to a resentencing hearing. But Faye had a difficult decision to make. If she was resentenced and released based on the time she had already served, she could not fight her innocence claim. And remember, there were two people involved in the crime, a man and a woman. And a man was originally charged with Faye. And we know in the co-defendant's case, when his attorney asked for discovery, they dropped the charges. So we wanted to know what was it specifically from the crime lab. And rather than giving us that, they made an offer of time served. And that is when Faye then had to make a really difficult and horrific choice of, you know, do I want to keep pursuing my innocence claim in this federal court? If she did, she could lose the deal to be released based on time served. So she had to choose. Accept this chance to be free, knowing she would remain a felon or stay in prison and continue the potentially never-ending fight for her own exoneration. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On July 16th, 2018, Faye accepted the time-served offer and walked out of prison. To walk out of those gates, oh, it was such a release that I was like, oh my God, I am out. Um, yet I had some emotions because I thought about the ones that I was leaving behind. And that was the life that I knew because I'd been there for over uh, 20 summer. So, you know, I had these mixed emotions, yet I was so happy to be home with those that had been fighting to get me out and be around people, other people. One of those people was Tiffany. She was gone 10 years before I ever got out, but that whole 10 years she was out. She constantly wrote me, sent me money, just was there for me faithfully. And that was something that I had never in my life experienced. I had no one to be so genuine, authentic. It was just unbelievable. And I was like, they don't make people like they make Tiffany anymore. Tiffany and Faye's relationship developed into a romantic one. These days, they travel back and forth to see each other. Faye lives in Kansas City, Missouri, and Tiffany out in rural Huntsville, Arkansas. I am country. I would rather to be in the woods than the city. Do you bring her to the woods? Yes, as much as possible. (laughs) But, and then she takes me to the city. Like, uh, we have a fishing trip planned here pretty soon. So I want to, I have to go get our tent. Wow. How's how's being in the woods? How's camping? I don't picture you as a camper. <laughs> I am not. I am not. Uh, that's her. And so where she lives, Huntsville, population 75. She's been there all her life. I don't think I would ever live in a country town. like. I wish uh, listeners Huntsville. could see your face right now. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, uh, yeah, hopefully in the future, Tiffany and I, could we would live together and have our fur babies and uh, the babies that, you know, that I desire to have. And we could be a big family. Faye and Tiffany hope to have a family someday. But since Faye was resentenced and released, her conviction still stands. So she's technically still a convicted felon. Because of this felony, I cannot uh, adopt, which is heartbreaking. Uh, Yet, um, I'm hoping to maybe possibly um, have a surrogate. Uh, So that's the goal. And if not, uh, my niece, hopefully uh, they can have babies for me, uh, something like that. And I also have um, 
three amazing uh, babies. They are two schnauzers and one tiny teacup chihuahua that are my babies. But as with adopting, life has been hard with the label convicted felon attached to her, even with the support of the MIP. When I do um, go for interviews or go to apply, I'm given a letter that, you know, she's actually innocent of this crime, yet we're still fighting to clear her name. And so it helps in some aspects, but I've been denied housing in spite of the letter. So sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Faye currently works as a receptionist for Chevrolet in Kansas City. She also advocates for other wrongfully incarcerated people and is on the board of an organization which helps formerly incarcerated women returning to society. Faye's only shot at exoneration is now clemency, and her first clemency petition from Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson was denied. She cannot apply again for another eight years. You know, I'm just so happy to be free. Yet, I'm physically free, but I'm not free. If you want to help Faye, go to change.org and type in Faye Jacobs to ask Governor Asa Hutchinson to pardon Faye. Next time on Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling, Hank Skinner. I'm sitting there looking at that gurney that they're fixing to put me on. I could see it through the door. They had the door open. I could see the microphone, I could see the straps, the arm bars, and I was absolutely convinced I was fixing to die. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis, as well as our senior producer, Annie Chelsea, researcher, Lila Robinson, Story editor Sonia Paul, with additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Connor Hall. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrongful Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both Instagram and Twitter at Maggie Freeling. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number no. 1. Hey everybody, welcome to Across Generations where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. 
Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 